Our New Testament reading is from Colossians 1. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he may, might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. You are our rock 
You are our Redeemer, and we need you. So would you be with us and bless us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Since the inception of the Christian church, two things have been true of it. On one hand, the church has from the very earliest days been Jesus' chosen community to be this main instrument of God's great project of making all things new. So on one hand, we might say the church has from its very beginning been integral to what God is doing in the world. And on the other hand, from day one, the church has been problematic. There's been a need of reformation. It has been one of the great obstacles to the very mission of which it is integral. So that comes into the fore here in our story as we read the story of Jesus and Peter and the so-called gates of hell. As we see Peter appearing in this story as a, a kind of stand-in for the church, as a kind of lead disciple who gets special recognition where at this one moment we see Peter named as the rock, this foundation upon whom, upon which Jesus will build his church. And in the same episode, we see him as the Satan, get behind me, the accuser, the one who stands in the way, the one who stands in opposition to the good purposes of God. Now, it's no secret today that we are in the midst of uh, a major religious transition in this country and in really all of the Western world. The past 25 years has seen a more rapid change than any other 25-year period in the history of our country. And so the most recent major change before this one was the 25 years following the Civil War where we saw the largest growth in religious affiliation and participation ever before that we've seen in this country. But the past 25 years, we've seen the reverse where to the tune of about 125% more intense, we've seen a de-churching, where 40 million Americans have left the faith or left at least active participation in the church over the last 25 years. It's a movement some are calling the great de-churching. Uh, there are no shortage of articles and books and hot takes on why this is happening, what's at the root of it, what's at the core of it. Some of you may have recently read the article that came out in The Atlantic at the end of July by Jake Meter, The Misunderstood Reasons Millions of Americans Stopped Going to Church, where Meter posits that at the core of this great de-churching is actually a discipleship failure within the church that we're not actually committing to a life of transformation sufficient to be different enough to want to be part of it. We're not distinct enough. We're not, we're not actually following Jesus. And we'll see flavors of that coming up here in this text, I think. We'll also see, though, other takes on what's happening in the church. It's the difference between the church's ethical values and teachings and the historic positions of the church on what has become more commonplace in our society today. So there's a, a, a dividing, a wedge, right, between social norms and values that are most commonly held and the historic positions of the church. And so more and more people are finding the historic teachings of the church to be intolerable or unjust or just simply not worth following. 
You also hear plenty about the disillusionment, especially with evangelicalism and the conservative church, about the church's unwillingness to deal with all of the isms with which it has become intertwined, nationalism, the racism, patriarchy, whatnot. And then coming from the other side, you might say, well, the church that has become the most progressive, the most like the society, has not been sufficiently Christian to differentiate itself to where there's any point in being part of the church as opposed to being simply part of some sort of social program or movement. All of those things are out there in the ether and all of those things, there's probably, a, there's probably some truth in each and every one of them. But what we get at here in this passage is Jesus engaging Peter and I think two very important things about what it means for the church to be the church. And I think no matter how you're looking at the great de-churching in this moment, there's a lesson for us or maybe multiple lessons for us about number one, why we should take heart and not despair in the midst of this religious revolution that appears to be going in the wrong direction. And on the other hand, a lesson to be learned about why we might need to pay more attention to the ways in which we ourselves need to be reformed. What does it mean for the church to be the church? Here we see on one hand, the church becomes the church when it confesses Jesus as the Messiah. There's this great climactic moment in the Gospel of Matthew where the story has been unfolding all the way up to this point. And they get to this moment where there are different rumors going around about who this Jesus is. And the, the story has been unfolding and Jesus has been doing incredible things and he's been teaching incredible lessons. And they've just come through this episode where Jesus has had an interaction with the leaders of the, the religious establishment and he's just kind of removed his own disciples from their authority. And he's asking them, who do the people say that I am? And his disciples respond with, well, you know, some think you're John the Baptist. Maybe John the Baptist reincarnated since he was actually just beheaded two chapters before. Or maybe just John the Baptist, as in they don't know the difference between the guy who was in custody and Jesus. But Herod Antipas seems to think that Jesus is John, others probably too. Others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The expectation that the prophet would return. Maybe this is he. Who do the people say that I am? Jesus asks his disciples. And then he turns and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks with astonishing clarity. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, good job. You nailed it. Blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. God himself has made this known to you. You have correctly identified who I am. And Peter's confession becomes this one pillar that we might say that the church is the church only insofar as it is confessing this. Because this is a section in Matthew where he turns his attention really to unpacking the nature of this community of the people of Jesus. And right here, Peter stands at the very front as sort of representing the whole thing in himself. And his confession becomes foundational for, for the very thing that Jesus will build. And he says, 
you are Peter, which is a nickname that's like Rocky, right? The, the word Peter means rock. And so this is the play on words here. You are Peter, you are Rocky. And on this rock, it's like a double emphatic, this very rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So there's this one pillar, it's this confession of Jesus as the Messiah, recognizing that he's the one in whom God is doing the great big thing. But then if you skip down, Jesus begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, this is where Peter gets sideways with Jesus and he gets it all wrong and, and he goes, no way. That's how this goes from here. Because everyone knows the Messiah, the king, is going to establish the kingdom, overthrow Rome, establish the state of Israel once again, the nation of Israel that's been living under the iron fists of this tyrant empire and dying a death at their hands right away is not the strategy for how this comes to be. So Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. God forbid it, this may never happen to you. To which Jesus turns to Peter and says, pretty much the opposite of the whole rock thing. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So whereas on the first part, this confession of Jesus as the Christ, Peter, it's not the flesh and blood. It's not the human reason that's led him here. It's the very father, right? It's God has made this known to you. But down here where he's saying, you can't die, Jesus. He says, you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And what we see here is this second pillar of what makes the church the church. It's not just confessing Jesus as the Christ, but it's following Jesus in the way of death and resurrection. And the church becomes the church. And of course, there's more to it than that. The story will keep moving forward. We'll encounter the spirit. There's gonna be a whole lot more robust of a picture of what this looks like when we get more of the story. But as this episode stands on its own, we get these two pillars. The church becomes the church as it confesses Jesus and as it follows Jesus in the way of Jesus, which goes the way of the cross. To do one without the other begins to create something apart from the kind of community that Jesus has come to establish. And I think the lesson for us today as we begin to consider the great de-churching, as we think about why do we struggle with the church, and it is because of these things that are true. The church is problematic. The warts and all picture of the church that is portrayed, it's real, it's true. The abuses of power are real. The horrific stories are real. Those things are true. Also true, the church is God's chosen community that is integral to the mission. And so the movement for us as followers of Jesus of what do we do with this, it isn't to abandon the church, it isn't to despair over the things that we're seeing as people are leaving, rather it is to turn our gaze to Jesus who says on this rock I will build my church against whom the gates of Hades will not prevail. 
He will complete the good work. We don't have to worry about that. But also to take seriously the get behind me Satan. The ways in which we're willing to follow Jesus except not in that way. The ways in which we're wanting to follow Jesus as long as he makes my life more cushy. Or the ways in which we're willing to follow Jesus as long as he's ornamental on my otherwise predetermined plan of self-actualization, self-determination, writing my own story, and Jesus is my sidekick. The way of Jesus is this way of death and resurrection, and Peter can't embrace that in the beginning. But what we'll see is that the story begins to gel when the disciples finally seeing the crucified and risen Jesus, finally listening to him as he says, stay and wait for the gift. And they wait and they receive the spirit and they're enlivened by the life of God. And then they begin to go out and they begin to follow in the way of Jesus, making disciples who are actually following in that way. And the church begins to go viral in the world because the lives that they're living are compelling. The message that they're speaking is true and the works that they do are beautiful. They begin to live as the hands and feet of Jesus in the world when both their confession and their following conform to the way of Christ. So this is our mixtape series. And we're usually, this is our last one of the mixtape. And then next week, we're gonna start a new series on Exodus. But if you've been around this summer, you know our mixtape series has been uh, a little bit of a hodgepodge of Bible stories where we are pulling some of the greatest hits of the Bible into this space where we're trying to give them each breathing room in their own context to let these texts speak to us afresh. And this one is our last one. And I, I love this as a text that we get to let sit and uh, put it in the decanter and let it breathe and then pour it out afresh and savor it because there's a lot here, a lot more than we can probably tackle in one sermon, but there's some real richness here and some real important background that if we're not aware of it, we might not read this text in a very helpful way. So all the things I just said, I think are really important and those are not necessarily new insights into this text. This, these are more classical things that I think are very important about confessing Jesus as Christ, following Jesus in the way of death and resurrection. I do think these are the two main things for us to really learn from this text and to begin to press into our lives and say, how do we need to lean into this more fully? How is my confession deficient in a way that God's calling forth from me a more robust acknowledgement of Jesus? as King, as Lord of the world in my life, as the Messiah of Israel who's extending God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. I think there's an invitation there for us to go deeper in our confession. I think there's also an invitation to go deeper in our following Jesus and, and really examining our lives and asking, what is it that I'm withholding from you, God? What are the ways in which I'm not willing to die because I'm wanting to cling to my own life I'm wanting to cling to my own status quo. I'm not willing to let those things go as an apprentice to you who went to the cross. Because those places where we withhold ourselves from him, where we cling, those are the very things that keep us from the fullness of life for which we're made. 
And not one of us is doing this consistently. And we need the help of the community to help one another take those next steps on that journey, to help one another see our blind spots, to help one another desire to feast on the goodness of God, to taste and see that he's good, and to invite the transforming grace of God who makes all things new, including you and me, and delights in you whose dream for your life and for my life is bigger than our own dreams and whose power to make it real is greater than ours as well. So those are the two main takeaways. And I don't think we need a ton of context to get there. But then there are these other things about this text that have also been really important in the, in the life and history of the church. For example, Peter as the rock. Now, this is a massive debate in the history of the church, especially between the Roman Catholic Church and other branches, right? Because in Roman Catholicism, the whole position for the Pope being the head of the church rests on this argument of apostolic succession from Peter. Peter as the rock, then, as the story goes, becoming Bishop of Rome and passing the baton sequentially to the bishops of Rome to come after him. And so because of this primacy of Peter that Jesus himself instated, the argument goes, it's the straight line from Peter to the Pope that establishes the Pope as the head of the church. And so to not submit to the Bishop of Rome would be to not follow the will of Jesus, if that is what Jesus meant by Peter being the rock. Now, those in the Eastern Orthodox or Protestant traditions will say, well, it's not the person and office of Peter that is the rock. It is the faith and confession of Peter that is the rock. And the rock upon which Jesus will build his church is the confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ. And that's a debate that goes way back, thousand years. Um, and it's an important one because it, it addresses some of the greatest divides in the Christian church today. And so what is, what is Jesus doing? Is the rock Peter himself? Is the rock Peter's confession? Well, I think probably both are true in some sense, but I also think there might be a third option that we haven't considered sufficiently. And when we do, it might make this text take on a little bit of a different shape, maybe even in a way that might promote a greater hope for unity in the church in the future. And it's really about this detail in verse 13 that we skipped right over. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, what is that? Caesarea Philippi is a city about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And so where Jesus and his disciples have just been, uh, they, they, they took a walk. And to get up here, you gotta, you gotta hike like 25 miles uphill. It's not just a place that you would go accidentally. It's a, it takes a very intentional journey for Jesus and his disciples to go into this region. So they're walking uphill, it probably took them a few days. Who knows what they're talking about along the way. But then they get into this region. And Caesarea Philippi is a pagan city. That, that lies at the like, extreme northern border of the territory of Israel, near where like Dan was in the days of Moses and beyond. And Caesarea Philippi 
was famous for being kind of the, the place where this spring came from, a spring that flowed down and watered much of the area. And it was also famous for being a worship site for pagan gods. And there was a big rock there with a grotto in the side of it, and it had a shrine to Pan. In fact, the, the city's name today is even Banias, that comes from Panias, that comes from Pan, the Greek god. And so there are the shrines to Pan. There's a temple to Zeus. There are temples to the Syrian Baals and things like that. Like it was, it was a city full of these pagan worship sites of all kinds, all there up against the backdrop of a great big rock. And at the bottom of the rock, there's this place where the waters come out from this cavern, and that's where the spring comes from. And guess what they called the hole in the rock where the waters come out? That's the gate of Hades. That's where they believe there to be sort of this portal between their world and the world of the underworld, where the realm of the dead below the earth. And so when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and against this church, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. He's standing next to a giant rock and the gate of Hades is right there. And I wonder if maybe when Jesus says on this very rock, if he means the big rock that he's standing by. Because if he does mean that, what he means is that the community that he's come to build, he's coming to build it even among all the pagan gods and shrines and temples and territories. He's coming to build it away from Jerusalem and not just in Jerusalem and Judea. Right? He's coming to build it inside of a place that pushes the boundaries and that will even be bearing witness to the living God in places where there is rampant idolatry. It's a hint, I think, at the outgoing mission of Jesus and the work that he's come to do. And it's not the only time that he's done this. We saw this a couple of weeks ago when he went to the Decapolis, right? And he goes into pagan territory and tells the former demoniac to go tell all his friends. Whereas as he's talking to his disciples in Israel, he said, don't tell anybody. You've correctly identified me as the Christ, don't tell. Because he knows that their connotations for what Messiah is don't match the kind of Messiah he's come to be. And if the people think he's going to be the kind of, you know, war horse riding revolutionary Messiah, he's going to get a crowd following him that is very different from the kind of crowd he's trying to summon. Not following in a way of de death and resurrection, but following in a way of conquering unto triumph. But that's not how Jesus' project goes forward. What if the rock is, at least in part, literally the big rock that he's standing on when he says this very rock as he's talking to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi? Fascinatingly, just before COVID, archaeologists discovered and excavated a fourth century church built on that rock in front of the gate of Hades. <laughs> Very cool. The picture we get 
as Jesus takes his disciples 25 miles uphill away from everything that they know and everything that's familiar and away from their final destination. The picture that we get is Jesus going into the far country once again to go post up amid the kinds of peoples that the religious establishment would have said, you're not the right kind of people to get near, to get near the kinds of activities, not to be participating in them, but not to be fearing them, but to instead make friends with the outsiders, to build relational bridges with the untouchables, to actually trust Jesus that what he said in the you know, two chapters prior, that what makes you unclean is not what goes into you, but what comes out. You see, what Jesus has done just before this scene is he has taken, he's taken issue with the religious authorities. He's warned them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he's basically taken his own disciples out from under the oversight and authority of the, the authorized teachers of the day. And he's telling them now, I'm giving you authority. You see, the binding and loosing that he talks about here is a rabbinic term that has to do with teaching. The binding and loosing authority of the rabbis was the authority to determine which teachings did and which teachings didn't correspond to the law of God. And Jesus has just taken his disciples out from under the establishment and he's now saying, I'm giving you the keys, that I'm giving you the job of being the authorized teachers on the very basis of what Peter just said. Because that's true. I am the Messiah, Jesus acknowledges. And so he gives the keys to Peter and the disciples. He charges them with this binding and loosing authority. Note, this is not Peter at the pearly gates in heaven, letting people in or not, like you see in the far side or whatever, right? It's, it's like what is bound and loosed is on earth, is on earth. It's not Peter at the pearly gates any more than it is the devil with pitchfork at the gates of hell. Neither of those images has anything to do with this passage. But instead, what we have is Jesus taking his very Jewish band of disciples out from under the, the authority of the Jewish teachers taking them up into totally pagan territory, into the belly of the beast, and saying, I'm gonna build my church right here. And the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against my church. Whether it's this literal stream and this hole in the earth right here, or all that it stands for metaphorically, the power of evil, the power of death, anything, nothing will overcome Jesus's building project of building his community on the rock. But there is this obstacle that has to be dealt with. And it's Peter's opposition to the way of death and resurrection. And when, he, when Jesus encounters it, he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. And he continues his project of teaching his disciples all that they need to know to be the, key, the keeper of the keys and the binders and loosers in the world. So as we think about this passage and we pull it toward our own lives, as we think about what does it mean for us to be the church that confesses Jesus as the Christ, to be the church that follows Jesus in his own way of death and resurrection, that actually practices the dynamic that Jesus is modeling for us here. I think one of the key features for us is we have to be a community 
that makes space for people to belong before they believe. Jesus has been with his disciples for how long now? And they just finally said the first right thing. And then immediately got it all wrong. And the, the work continues. I myself, in my own life, am the personal beneficiary of a community that welcomed me in when I did not believe. I myself have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord first in the community of a people who embraced me even when I didn't confess or follow in any way, shape, or form. And my heart, my desire for us is that we would be the kind of welcoming community that would be opening our doors wide, opening our homes, opening our lives, opening our relational capacities to be available to people, to be inclusive of people who aren't yet at the same place on the journey where you are or where I am. And also to be mindful of like, of all of us in the room, we're all in different places on this journey. We all struggle with different things. We all struggle with similar things. We all believe some similar things. We probably all believe different things. But what does it look like for us to be a community committed to one another to going deeper? To committed to one another going deeper and farther in toward Jesus, to where we're understanding more and practicing more the way of death and resurrection. To be helping one another along that way, where we're deep at the center, where we're wide at the margins, and where we're opening our imaginations to the possibility that what Jesus is calling us toward, what he's inviting us into, is maybe different than what we would even consider realistic or desirable or even appropriate, because he's in the business of transformation. We have an incredible calling as the church of Jesus. And the beautiful thing is God provides everything that he asks us to take up and do. He doesn't ask anything of us that he doesn't give to us by his grace. But it's in this dynamic of trusting him, of confessing, of following, that we actually begin to understand and experience what it is to be connected with God, to be involved with Jesus, and to be alive with him in the world. May we at Resurrection be a church that confesses Jesus, that follows him into the depths, that is always reforming, always welcoming, and always inviting God to tinker with our lives and opening ourselves to him. Would you pray with me? Our God, we thank you for the great love that you show us in Jesus, and we thank you for your great transforming grace. We thank you for this profoundly hopeful proclamation that you will build your church and that there will be no opposing power that will prevail against it. God, we acknowledge that we don't always know how to navigate the shifting cultural winds and developments, and we can become anxious. We can ourselves become despairing perhaps, but would you buoy us with this hope that you in fact will carry to completion the good work that you've begun, that you in fact have bound yourself to us, that you in fact are carrying us forward into the future of your making, and that while this is absolutely nothing new, that your church is problematic, that you are also continually working to make us beautiful, to help us to deal with all the ways that we need to repent, or we need to be changed, or we need to see our blind spots. 
Thank you that you give us your love and grace in a way that we can do that knowing the safety of being held fast by you. Would you do a transformative work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.